Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Uh, If you are able and willing, please rise with me for the reading of scripture. Once again, that is 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and it is in your bulletin. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it? that overcomes the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe that God, uh, God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. So I just learned that when I had um, the head of Converge, which is the regional um, Baptist organization in town, he's a, a mentor and a friend preach. He did the same thing with the scriptures. Is that true? He had you rise for the scriptures? So it's a Baptist thing to do that? Okay. It's cool. I was just, when you said rise, I was like, we're changing it up. All right. I'm here for that. Um, just briefly before uh, I get into First John, I know that um, we have a whole spectrum of opinions on masks and church and the pandemic and all the things, and um, I'm friends with a number of pastors, and as far as I can tell, you guys are more gracious than a lot of the churches of the pastors that I'm friends with, um, so I appreciate that. Second of all, I would say there are churches that just reopened for the first time because of their state guidelines and because of... Um, the, the limitations imposed on them by their building or the fact that they don't have a building. So all that to say, I'm really grateful that we are able to continue worshiping together. And I think you are too, or you wouldn't be here. But I just wanted to say that out loud. John continues his um, sermonic leaflet, if you will, to the churches. I say it that way because uh, it has a much less formal tone and structure than a lot of the shorter letters in the New Testament. 
And he's writing to children. The children of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And every time I read this passage, it reminds me of John chapter 3, verse 3, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is speaking with a religious leader who had a lot of honest questions and went to Jesus with them. And sometimes we can get judgmental of the Pharisees, and one of the reasons that we do that is because a lot of them were jerks. But one reason we need to resist that is a lot of them were not. Nicodemus is the one that Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 3, and he's there at the crucifixion became a follower of Christ. What Jesus says to him early on in John chapter 3, John heard him say this, or Jesus told him about it later, unless a man is born, born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. One of the things that's interesting to me is uh, that scripture is one that in my experience, not so much in New England, but in the Midwest, is people that are not followers of Jesus and not interested, that scripture makes them nervous because they've heard it in these aggressive ways. John is writing to Christians who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, but they're not acting like it. He, in as much as his letter may be talking about salvation and, and those things, that's not the reason he wrote it. He wrote it because he wants the people to love one another because they've been made alive through the Spirit. I haven't talked about this very much, even though the book is the word love is used a lot. This is the pure love. Some of you know, you've heard preachers talk about this a lot. There are lots of kinds of love in uh, the Greek language. And English just really squashes it and makes us do some work to understand the scriptures. This is the kind of love that is for the other, somewhat regardless of how they treat us, in ways they can receive. And the reason I add that little part on is John is expecting the members of these seven or eight churches in Turkey that were reading this sermonic leaflet to be excited, inspired to care for one another in ways that the other can receive. To be for them, somewhat regardless, and the reason I say somewhat is there's a point in time where people don't want to or cannot receive our care for them. And so there's actually nothing for us to do. That's a whole wisdom category that I don't want to get into because John's not getting into it. But sometimes there's nothing we can do for the others in our spiritual family. But John is attempting to inspire these local churches to love one another. So I have a question for you, and if you're newer to the church, it's not going to work at all. But if you have been here for a little while... It'll be a good application. Those of you that are newer to the church, I'm going to trust you to just do one extra step in your mind to make this a good question for you. Who's the last person in this spiritual family that you would want to make a meal for if they needed it? You picturing somebody? Thinking of a name? You're like, no, I love everybody. Good for you. It wasn't hard for me. And John's pushing back on that. And he's saying, you can still be for that person, somewhat regardless of how they talk with you or treat you or don't talk with you, right? You can still be for them because this alternative community needs to uh, mature to look so much different than the world that people treat us poorly and we're still for them. And then 
John says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. I like this verse. It feels backwards to me, but that's because John's a different style preacher than I am. I think he raised his voice and lowered his voice a lot more than I do. You know, those pastors will shout, and then they'll kind of whisper something. You're like, I kind of like what they whispered. And others say, I kind of like that they shouted, like they got some energy from it. So a pastor in Texas, I used to occasionally listen to his sermons because a good friend of mine essentially made me. And he would get yelly, and I didn't like when he would yell, and then he would say these things kind of under his breath. And I was like, that was really profound. I've got to write that down. I think John was a little bit more like that pastor, whose name's Matt Chandler, by the way. Keeping the commands of God is a sign that you love him. Some of those commands we can see, some we can't see, but one of the points that John is making, and it's made throughout the New Testament, is the sins that we commit actually affect the spiritual community of faith. Your behavior displays what you believe. Your behavior has nothing to do with your salvation. That's not what John is talking about. Remember chapter 1. What's at stake? Joy and maturity. He's not talking about whether you're saved or not, but he's saying, you who are saved, this is what it ought to look like. Mostly loving one another. But he talks a little more broadly than loving one another for just a minute. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments. And we're like, sure. And his commandments are not burdensome. And this is where I do kind of wish I were a little bit of a fire and brimstone toned preacher. And his commandments are not burdensome. Because I don't think that we believe that. I think we believe they're burdensome. Because some of them are very challenging for us to actually follow through on. Worship God and Him only. You're probably okay with that one or you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. Watch out for idols. If you actually understand the profoundness of our temptation towards idols, you know that's a challenge. Carry the name of the Lord with honor. I'm going through the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. So act like a Christian all the time without hypocrisy. That's, that, that can feel like a burden, right? We, in our, our mind, we're like, how can it not be a burden? The most ironic one to receive as a burden would be number four, take a day off, right? Is that ironic? Yes? Okay. Whew. Sometimes I get irony wrong. Honor your father and mother, and you're like, honor, that's vague. Yep. But do we kind of know what it means? Yep. Does it feel like a burden sometimes? Yep. Don't murder, which is an umbrella command. Commands 6, 7, 8, and 10 are all just two words in Hebrew. Don't do this. And so we think it's a checklist. As long as I don't, you know, drive over someone with my car on purpose, which someone had a dream that they did to me this week, so it makes me think they worked too hard at day camp. I'm not going to say who it was, but they were, they were troubled by the dream, and I'm like, I'm troubled by the dream. <laughs> back, back to the notes. <laughs> we think of the commandments as checklist things. If we do this, then we're okay. That's not the way the Bible understands them. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you see in the lists of sin expansions and um, insights on them, all of the command, even the two-word commands in the Ten Commandments are expansive umbrella commands about how we treat one another. Jesus expanded on do not murder in a way that convicts all of us. We don't get to call people names in our heart or in our head, right? 
Don't commit adultery doesn't mean married person, doesn't just mean married person, don't pursue someone else in another marriage. It's an umbrella command about God's design for human sexuality and for reproduction and for his glory. Envy is one of our, or coveting is one of our really tricky ones because we all want other stuff, right? Other people's stuff. That's a command. Not lying, I think, is perhaps the most tricky one. Because, man, it's easy to be silent when we should probably talk a little bit. It's easy to exaggerate. It's easy to just sort of shave a little on the truth or tell a little white lie. You guys know there are no white lies, right? Like, saying something untrue is harmful in community. It erodes trust, among other things. And here's the thing. As I go through the Ten Commandments like that, I'm betting at least three or four of them feel burdensome to you. So that's where we hear John, the sermonic, excited, passionate preacher, telling you declaratively, they're not. They're actually guideposts to freedom and kingdom life. And because of the curse, and because of all the imperfect humans you've done life with, some of these are going to you're going to think or feel that they're burdensome, and that's why he says so directly. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. One of the reasons that we interpret God's commands as burdensome is we actually don't believe in the real gospel. We believe in a gospel of sin management. We were saved through the real gospel, that God's love preceded our first thought towards him. And then we realized we needed to say, oh yeah, I can't do this. I need you. Then we are brought into the Christian life. But then we come to believe over time that what God wants for us is to behave. What God wants for us is to keep the rules. And I know it sounds like a semantic shift, but it's not friends. The gospel is not that you manage your sin. The gospel is we receive a kingdom. And then we approach the commands as guidelines to a flourishing life because they are not burdensome. They are expansive. They're life-giving. They make a new community that is actually loving and good. So his children overcome. And the, the longer I study First John, the more I see the similarities to the Gospel of John and to the Revelation. And John 16, so you have John 3, 3 that I read earlier, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And then in John 16, Jesus says, I have these things to you, that in, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And I know all of you remember my sermons from a few years ago on the book of Revelation. And if you're like, I'm so confused by Revelation, come talk to me afterwards. This is an incredible 20-minute video. I've watched it 10 times. It's incredible. It summarizes the book. And you won't be intimidated by it anymore. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life. Moving ahead to verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Moving ahead to verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name. 
Verse 26 in chapter 2, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nation. Moving to chapter 3, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And then finally in verse 21, the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. For the New Testament, conquering is not you aggressively, violently taking. It's you receiving from Jesus, acting like a follower of him, and mostly in ways the world will not esteem, creating peace, leading in reconciliation, and love in the places you find yourself, be that your vocation, your actual neighborhood, your biological family. Overcoming is first receiving Jesus as Lord, and then acting like a follower. John's biggest concern is all these people who have been made alive are not acting like they're alive. One of the um, most regular, profound experiences of being a pastor is watching and story collecting as things happen to you watching some people through horrible circumstances they would have never wanted fully come alive to their faith and others leave. Watching people experience death, disease, betrayal and those things drive them away from the faith or into church every Sunday. Watching people receive remarkable success because that can tempt us in other ways, right? and remarkable success, humbling them because they know they didn't deserve it and they end up in the church all the time. Or remarkable success convincing them that faith didn't play a big role in their life. John is concerned for all these people in similar ways who have been made alive in Christ that they act alive. There is an eschatological flair to his writing. You guys with me on that? Eschatological end times stuff. The reason that this resonates so much with the book of Revelation is this is another way, and the New Testament is, is very fond of doing this, happens a lot. This is in light of the fact that Jesus will return. Hang in there. Remember who saved you. Continue to act like a Christian, which is acting like an overcomer. Not because you overcame, because Jesus did, and you received that. And therein is new life. I'm challenged by the language of the scripture because I don't really feel like an overcomer. Paul calls us saints. Definitely don't feel like a saint because of the way that word's always been used since I started understanding words. And yet here's where God so lovingly reorients us, friends. You are an overcomer, not because of your work, because of Jesus's. His children overcome, and then they testify. Verses 6, 7, and 8 throw you off a little bit, all this water and blood and spirit stuff. Well, I have good news and bad news about that section. One is, um, not everybody agrees on what that means. 
We know so much about the scriptures, their interdependence and um, reliable... What am I trying to say? The reliability of the scriptures, archaeologically, the manuscripts, the interconnectedness of the people, like it's clear, like Peter even says at one point that he has read Paul and he's not positive he fully understands him, which is actually proof that these men knew each other and knew something about each other's ministries. The scriptures are incredibly reliable, but that doesn't always mean we knew exactly what they meant. But here's what I think John is getting at in verses 6 and 7 and 8. He's talking about the testimony of Jesus' earthly and spiritual reality, the fact that he was fully God and fully man. The water is attesting to Jesus' baptism where a voice spoke from heaven and people witnessed it. And at the time, part of the reason John wrote this, the reason much of the New Testament is written is, those witnesses were beginning to die. So we're like, oh, we've got to write some of this stuff down. But for a long time, you could just go talk to the people. Like, I was there. It was crazy. <laughs> Voice from heaven. So it was both baptism, a spiritual um, call to ministry for Jesus, and a public affirmation of his divinity. The blood is both the blood that he really spilled as a real man when he was crucified, and John has referenced this at least twice, that blood is what stands between us and the judgment of God. The word for that in the Greek is, propiti- is helasmus in Greek, propitiation in Greek. John's already referenced it, so he's expecting you to remember that. I don't always remember it, so I wonder if you do. That's what he's referencing with blood and with the Spirit, that the Spirit directly testified at Jesus' baptism. Then the Spirit enlivened the disciples gave them some miracles to prove or to help people pay attention to the message that they were talking about. I think that's what John was getting at. Uh, the scholar that, I, that helped me with this is Bob Yarbrough. You want to borrow that book, you can. Most of you don't like my books like that. That's okay. I'll read those. You can read other books. But what he's pushing back on also is, and we've, we've covered this, but he's still pushing back on it, so we want to talk about it again. People were testifying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. If you read the, the um, angel's words to the seven churches in Revelation, you'll see this in at least three, maybe four of them. People saying, yes, Jesus was spirit, and he said some good things, but he wasn't really here in the flesh. Which, if you know anything about first century Greek culture, you're like, I, yep, yep, that, w- that makes sense that they thought that. And John pushes back as strong as he possibly can that that's not the testimony. That's not what Christians believe. That's not the way. Jesus is fully God and fully man is the way to summarize it in the way that a lot of the church councils, because these issues continued despite the letters, they testify that Jesus really did come in the flesh. The testimony, I think, that we're prone to hearing is much more subtle, much less aggressive, and much more insidious. It has the same effect. The testimony that we hear all the time is spirituality can be a pleasant 6% of your life. The good news is great for you to engage two out of five Sundays, sing about, etc. Yes, be involved, you know, in your church and all that, and that's fine, that's enough. This only matters a little. A balanced person is someone that is spiritual, but not religious, you know. That's probably how we hear it the most often. And that is not the good news. 
The good news of Jesus cannot be an addition to your life. It has to either be news that changes everything, or it's actually not true. If it's news that changes everything, then it affects all of our life. And that doesn't mean that you need to be here seven days a week. I'm not talking about church activity. I'm talking about the way that we think about spirituality. And there are other kinds of spiritualities that can be an add-on, but Christianity is not one of them. It is either a way that changes everything, or it's not true. I told this story before, but it's been a long time, and it was so profound for me. Um, Christopher Hitchens is an English atheist, very conservative English atheist. Anyway, it's mind-blowing. I got to sit with him after a debate uh, in St. Louis, about eight or ten of us at the table, and um, he was talking about C.S. Lewis. And, you know, I'm a pastor. We love C.S. Lewis. If you didn't know that, we're very fond because he's very clear. He's not a theologian, which is probably why he was so clear. (laughs) And Chris Hitchens said, I love C.S. Lewis's explanation of that argument that Jesus is either who he says he is or he's a liar or a lunatic. Hitchens' conclusion is that he has to be a lunatic. Then he said, and I find everything else he wrote just boring and uninteresting. And all of us are like our jaws hit the floor because we love C.S. Lewis. But that argument's true. And John's speaking to Christians. So he's not speaking as philosophically. He's not speaking apologetically as in answering questions. He's speaking to people that say Jesus is Lord. And he's saying to them, I'm not sure all of you are acting as alive as you are. And my encouragement for those of you that are are tempted to believe that spirituality is something that can be added on is you have to decide before it's really urgent how engaged you're going to be. My kids do not play soccer. So I cannot relate to those of you that are trying to deal with the soccer calendar. But I can say my encouragement is before soccer season starts, you decide on how you're going to do Sundays. I'm not going to look at percentages. Those of you that love to vacation and have the the ability to do that much of the summer, terrific. Many of you share those vacation things with me. I appreciate it. You have to decide before the summer how are we going to act Christianly, and enjoy our sailboat or house or whatever. Those of you that waffle on Sunday mornings, whether to come or not, like you get up, you're drinking coffee, should we go to church or not? I think that conversation is better on the Thursday before. <laughs> I didn't know that was funny at all. Explain it later. Thanks. And the reason is, I'm not, I'm, this is not about, your, I mean, I'm talking to the people who attend church with masks on, like you guys are great, but I see the tendency and what happens is we think that it'll be easy to decide right in the moment. That's not actually how it works because the world is so pushy that spirituality only matters this much. And that can't be true for the gospel of Jesus. It has to either be the news that changes everything or go play golf or whatever you would prefer to do. His children overcome and then they testify and they testify with their actions and with their love for one another, and then they enjoy life in the Son. Hear verses 11 and 12 again, because they're so lovely. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Friends, hear me again, just to be clear. John is not telling these small churches in Turkey who's in and who's out. He's talking to people that say Jesus is Lord, and he's saying, why don't you act like it? Joy is at stake. In him there is light and no darkness. No, no darkness at all. When we don't act like followers of Christ, what's at stake is our joy. There is a kingdom that we enjoy through a trusting relationship with Jesus. And his special concern is they're not acting like it with respect to one another in those little house churches. The way I would summarize verse 12 is act like an alive person because you are. If your abs hurt from the slip and slide, you can still act like an alive person and listen to your friends at this church. You're tired. You can still pray, even in decade six of your faith or decade nine, still pray as though he hears you because he does. And your prayers matter to him. You can still sing as though you were saved from eternal death because you were. You can still give because hope is not in this place or gathering, but it is the vehicle of it, a primary vehicle people to learn about the with God life is the church. You can still love even the people in here that you don't like talking to. You can still love them because Jesus calls the, the church the bride of Christ. The beloved bride of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for all the truths uh, in and around the ones John is saying so clearly. That we have been made alive in you, and then we get to act like it. And therein is the flourishing with God life. We praise and thank you that some of the assurance we receive from you is in acting like your followers, even when we don't necessarily feel like it or intellectually understand the challenging but life-giving commands that are indeed not burdensome. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that in, this, in these last few minutes, you would indeed assure us that we are yours and you are ours because of your work and pursuing kind, fatherly heart. Amen.